0: Chapter 42. The Whiteness of the Whale What the white whale was to Ahab has been hinted. What, at times, he was to me, as yet remains unsaid. Aside from those more obvious considerations touching Moby Dick, which could not but occasionally awaken in any man's soul some alarm, there was another thought, a rather vague, nameless horror concerning him, which, at times, by its intensity, completely overpowered all the rest— and yet so mythical, and well-nigh ineffable it was, that I almost despair of putting it in incomprehensible form. It was the whiteness of the whale that above all things appalled me. But how can I hope to explain myself here, and yet, in some dim, random way, explain myself I must, else all these chapters might be naught? Though in many natural objects, whiteness refiningly enhances beauty— as if imparting some special virtue on its own, as in marbles, japonincus, and pearls, though various nations have in some way recognized a certain royal preeminence in this hue, even the barbaric, grand old kings of Pegu placing the lord of the white elephants above all their other magniloquent ascriptions of dominion, and the modern king of Siam unfurling the same snow-white quadruple in the royal standard, and the hanoverian flag bearing the one figure of a snow-white charger and the great austrian empire cesarean heir to overlording rome having for the imperial color the same imperial hue and though this preeminence in it applies to the human race itself giving the white man ideal mastership over every dusky tribe and though besides all this whiteness has been even made significant of gladness For among the Romans, a white stone marked a joyful day, and though in all other moral sympathies and symbolizings, this same hue is made the emblem of many touching noble things. The innocence of brides, the benignity of age, though among the red men of America, the giving of a white belt of a wampum was the deepest pledge of honor, though in many climes whiteness typifies the majesty of justice in the ermine of the judge and contributes to the daily state of kings and queens drawn by milkweed steeds. Though even in the higher mysteries of the most august religions, it has been made the symbol of the divine spotlessness and power by the Persian fire-worshippers, the white-forked flames being held the holiest on the altar, and the Greek mythologies, great Jove himself, made incarnate in a snow-white bull, And though to the noble Iroquois, the midwinter sacrifice of the sacred white dog was by far the holiest festivals of their theology, that spotless faithful creature being held the purest envoy when they send the great spirit of the annual tidings of their fidelity. And though directly from the Latin word for white, all Christian priests derive the name of one of their sacred virtues, the alb or tunic worn beneath the cassock, and though the holy pomps of Romish faith White is specially employed in the celebration of the passion of our Lord, though the vision of St. John, white robes are given to the redeemed, and the four and twenty elders stand clothed in white before the great white throne, and the holy one that sitteth there white like wool. Yet for all these accumulated associations with whatever is sweet and honorable and sublime, there yet lurks an elusive something in the innermost idea of this hue— which strikes more to panic to the soul than the redness which affrights in blood. This elusive quality it is, which causes the thought of whiteness when divorced from more kindly associations and coupled with any object terrible in itself, to heighten that terror is the furthest bounds. Witness the white bear of the poles and the white shark of the tropics. What but their smooth, flaky whiteness makes them the transcendent horrors they are, That ghastly whiteness it is which imparts such an abhorrent mildness, even more loathsome than terrific, to the dumb gloating of their aspect, so that not the fierce fanged tiger in this heraldic coat can so stagger courage in the white-shrouded bear or shark. With reference to the polar bear, it may possibly be urged by him, who would fain go still deeper into this matter, that it is not the whiteness separately regarded which heightens the intolerable hideousness of that brute, For, analyze that heightened hideousness, it might be said, only arises from the circumstance that the irresponsible ferociousness of the creature stands invested in the fleece of celestial innocence and love, and hence, by bringing together two such opposite emotions in our minds, the polar bear frightens us with so unnatural contrast, but even assuming all this to be true, yet were it not for the whiteness, you would not have that intensified terror." As for the white shark, the white-gliding ghostliness in repose in that creature, when beheld in his ordinary moods, strangely tallies with the same quality in the polar quadrupled. This peculiarity is most vivid, hit by the French, in the name they bestow upon that fish. The Romish mass for the dead being the requiem eternum, eternal rest, whence requiem denominating the mass itself and any other funereal music. Now, in allusion to the white, silent stillness of death in the shark, the mild deadliness of his habits, the French call him requin. Bethink thee of the albatross, whence come those clouds of spiritual wonderment and pale dread in which that white phantom sails in all imaginations. Not Coleridge first through that spell, but God's great unfaltering laureate nature." I remember the first albatross I ever saw. It was during a prolonged gale in waters hard upon the Arctic seas. From the forenoon watch below, I ascended to the overclouded deck, and there, dashed upon the main hatches, I saw a regal, featherly thing of unspotted whiteness and with a hooked Roman bill sublime. At intervals, it arched forth its vast archangel wings, as if to embrace some holy ark. Wondrous fluttering and throbbing shook it, Though bodily unharmed, it utter cries as some king's ghost in supernatural distress. Through its inexpressible strange eyes, methought I peeped to secrets which took hold of God. As Abraham before the angels, I bowed myself, and the white thing was so white, its wings so wide. And in those forever exiled waters, I had lost the miserable warping memories of traditions of the towns. Long I gazed at the prodigy of plumage. I cannot tell can only hint that things that darted through me then. But at last I woke, and turning, asked a sailor what bird was this. A Gawney, he replied. Gawney. I never thought I had heard that name before. Is it conceivable that this glorious thing is utterly unknown to men ashore? Never. But some time after, I learned that Gawney was some seaman's name for albatross. So that by no possibility could Cold Ridge's wild rhyme have aught to do with those mythical impressions— Which were mine, when I saw the bird upon our deck. For neither had I read the rhyme, nor knew the bird to be the albatross. Yet, in saying this, I do but indirectly burnish a little brighter in the noble merit of the poem and the poet. I assert then that in the wondrous bodily whiteness of the bird chiefly lurks the secrets of the spell. A truth the more evinced in this, that, by its solecism of terms, there are birds called grey albatross, and these I have frequently seen, but never with such emotions as when I beheld the arctic fowl. But how had the mystic thing been caught? Whisper it not, and I will tell. With the treacherous hook and line, as the fowl floated on the sea, at last the captain made a postman of it, tying a lettered leathern tally around its neck, and the ship's time and place, and then letting it escape. But I doubt not that the leathern tally meant for man was taken off in heaven when the white fowl flew to join the wing-folding, the invoking, and adoring cherub. Most famous in our western annals and Indian traditions is the white steed of the prairies, a magnificent milk-white charger, large-eyed, small-headed, bluff-chested, and with the dignity of a thousand monarchs in his lofty, over-scorning carriage. He was elected Circe by a herd of wild horses, whose pastures in those days were only fenced by the Rocky Mountains and the Alleghenies. At their flaming head, he westward trooped it like the chosen star, which every evening leads on those hosts of light. The flashing cascades of his mane, the curving comet of his tail, invested him with the housing more resplendent than gold and silver beaters could have furnished him. A most imperial and archangel apparition of that unfallen western world which to the eyes of the old trappers and hunters revived the glories of those primal times when Adam walked majestic as a god, bluff-bowed and fearless as this mighty steed. Whether marching amid his aides and marshals in that van of countless cohorts that endlessly steamed it over the plains, like an Ohio, or whether, with his circumambient subjects browsing all around the horizon, the white steed gallopingly reviewed them with warm nostrils... Reddening through its cool milkiness, in whatever aspect he presented himself, always to the bravest Indians he was the object of trembling reverence and awe. Nor can it be questioned from that stand on legendary records of this noble horse, that it was his spiritual whiteness chiefly which so clothed him with divineness, and that this divineness had that in it which, though commanding worship, at the same time enforced a certain nameless terror. But there are other instances where this whiteness loses all its accessory and strange glory, which invests it in the white steed and albatross. What is it that in the albino man so peculiarly repels and often shocks the eye, as that sometimes he is loathed by his own kith and kin? It is that whiteness which invests him, a thing expressed by the name he bears— the albino is as well as any other man, has no has no substantive deformity, and yet his mere aspect of the all-pervading whiteness makes him so strangely hideous than the ugliest abortion. Why should this be so? Nor, in quite other aspects, does nature, in her least palpable but not less malicious agencies, fail to enlist among her forces this crowning attribute of the terrible. From its snowy aspect, the gauntleted ghost of the southern seas has been denominated the white squall. Nor, in some historic instances, has the art of human malice omitted some potent of auxiliary. How wildly it heightens the effect of the passage of the forciant! When, massed in the snowy symbols of their faction, the desperate white hoods of Ghent murdered their bailiff in the marketplace. Nor, in some things, does the common hereditary experience of all mankind fail to bear witness to the supernaturalism of this hue. It cannot be well-doubted that the one visible quality in the aspect of the dead which most appalls the gazer is the marble pallor lingering there, as if indeed that pallor were as much the badge of consternation in the other world as of mortal trepidation there. And from that pallor of death we borrow the expressive hue of that shroud in which we warp them. Not even in our superstitions do we fail to throw the same snowy mantle round our phantoms, all ghosts rising in a milk-white fog, yea, there these terrors seize us, let us add, that even the king of terrors, when personified by evangelists, rides his pallid horse. Therefore, in his other moods, symbolize whatever grand or gracious thing he will by whiteness. No man can deny in his profound, idealized significance it calls up a peculiar apparition to the soul. But though without dissent this point be fixed, how is mortal man to account for it? to analyze it, would seem impossible. Can we then, by the citation of some of those instances wherein this thing of whiteness, though for the time either wholly or in great part stripped of all direct associations, calculated to impart to it aught fearful, but nevertheless is found to exert over us the same sorcery, however modified, can we thus hope to light upon some chance, clue to conduct us to the hidden cause we seek? Let us try." But in a matter like this, subtlety appeals and subtlety, and without imagination, no man can follow another into these halls. And though, doubtless, some at least of these imaginative impressions about the presented may have been shared by most men, yet few, perhaps, were entirely conscious of them at the time, and therefore may not be able to recall them now. Why do the man of untutored ideality, who happens to be but loosely acquainted with the peculiar character of the day, does the bare mention of Whitsuntide marshal in the fancy, long, dreary, speechless processions of slow-pacing pilgrims, downcast and hooded with new-fallen snow? Or, to the unread, unsophisticated Protestant of the Middle American states, why does the passing mention of a white friar or a white nun invoke such an eyeless statue in the soul? Or... What is there apart from the traditions of dungeoned warriors and kings, which will not wholly account for it, that makes the White Tower of London tell so much more strongly on the imagination of the untraveled American than those bloodied storied structures, its neighbors, the Boward Tower, or even the Bloody, and those sublimer towers, the White Mountains of New Hampshire, whence in peculiar moods come that gigantic ghost lines over the soul at the barren mention of the name? While the thought of Virginia's blue ridge is full of soft, dewy, distant dreaminess, or why, irrespective of all latitudes and longitudes, does the name of the White Sea exert such a spectralness over the fancy, while that of the Yellow Sea lulls us with mortal thoughts of long, lacquered, mild afternoons on the waves, followed by the gaudiest and yet sleepiest of sunsets, or, to choose a wholly unsubstantiated instance, purely addressed to the fancy, why, In reading the old fairy tales of Central Europe, the tall pale man of the heart's forest, whose changeless pallor unrestingly glides through the green of the groves, why is this phantom more terrible than all the whooping imps of Blocksburg?' nor is it altogether the remembrance of the cathedral-toppling earthquake, nor the stampedos of the frantic seas, nor the tearlessness of the arid skies that never rain, nor the sight of her wide field of leaning spires, wretched cope-stones, and crosses all adroop, like canted yards and anchored fleets, and her suburban avenues of house-walls lying upon each other as a tossed pack of cards. It is not these things alone which make tearless Lima the strangest, saddest city thou canst see, and Lima has taken the white veil, and there is higher horror in the whiteness of her woe. Old as Pizarro, this whiteness keeps her ruins forever new, admits not only the, gl- not only the cheerful greenness of complete decay, spreads over her broken ramparts and rigid pallor of the apoplexy that fixes its own distortions. I know that to the common apprehension, this phenomenon of whiteness is not confessed to be the prime agent in exaggerating the terror of object otherwise terrible, nor to the unimaginative mind is there aught of terror those appearances whose awfulness is another mind absolutely solely consist in this one phenomenon, especially when exhibited under any form at all approaching the muteness or universality. What I mean by these two statements may perhaps be respectively elucidated by the following examples. First, the mariner, when drawing nigh the coasts of foreign lands, if by night he hear the roar of breakers, starts to vigilance and feels just enough of trepidation to sharpen all his faculties, but under precisely similar circumstances, let him be called from his hammock to view his ship sailing a midnight sea of milky whiteness, as if from encircling headlands shoals of combined white bears were swimming around him, when he feels a silent, superstitious dread, the shrouded phantom of the whitened waters is horrible to him, like a real ghost. In vain. In vain the lead assures him he is still off soundings. Heart and helm, they both go down. He never rests till blue water is under him again. Yet where is the mariner who will tell ye thee? Sir, it was not so much the fear of striking hidden rocks as the fear of that hideous whiteness that so stirred me. Second, to the native Indian of Peru, the continual sight of the snow-houed Andes conveys naught of dread except perhaps in the mere fancy of the internal frosted desolateness reigning at such vast altitudes, and the natural conceit of what fearfulness it would be to lose oneself in such inhuman solitudes, much the same as it is with black woodsmen of the West who, with the comparative indifference viewed in unbounded prairie sheeted with driven snow no shadow of tree or twig to break the fixed trance of whiteness. Not so the sailor, beholding the scenery of the Arctic seas, where at times, by some infernal trick of Ledger main, in the power of frost and air, he, shivering and half shipwrecked, instead of rainbows speaking hope of solace in his misery, view what seems a boundless churchyard, grinning upon him, with his lean ice monuments and splintered crosses." But thou sayest, methinks this white-led chapter about whiteness is but a white flag, hung out from a craven soul. Thou surrenderest to a hypo, Ishmael. Tell me, why this strong, young colt, foaled from some peaceful valley of Vermont, far removed from all beasts of prey, why is it that upon the sunniest day, if you but shake a fresh buffalo robe behind him, so that he cannot even see it, but only smells its wild animal muskiness, Why will he start, snort, and with the bursting eyes paw the ground in the forenses of a fright? There is no remembrance in him of any gorings of wild creatures in his green northern home, so that the strange muskiness he smells cannot recall to him anything associated with the experience of former perils, for, what he knows, he, this New England colt, of the blackest bisons of distant Oregon. No. But here thou beholdest even in a dumb brute the indistinct of the knowledge of the demonism in the world. Though thousands of miles from Oregon, still when he smells that savage musk, the rendering goring bison herds are as present to the deserted wild fowl of the prairies, which this instant they may be trampling into dust. Thus, then, the muffled rollings of a milky sea, the bleak rustlings of the festooned frost of mountains, the desolate shiftings of the wind-rowed snows of prairies, all these, to Ishmael, are as the shaking of the buffalo robe to the frightened colt. Though neither know where the lie of nameless things of which the mystic sign gives forth such hints, yet with me, as with the colt, somewhere those things must exist— Though in many of its aspects this visible world seems formed in love, the invisible spheres were formed in fright. But not yet have we solved the incantations of this whiteness, and learned why it appeals to such power in the soul, and more strange, and far more portentous. Why, as we have seen, it is as once the most meaningful symbol of spiritual things, nay, the very veil of the Christian's deity, and yet should be as it is, the intensifying agent in the things the most appalling to mankind. Is it that by this indefiniteness it shadows forth the heartless voids and immensities of the universe, and thus stabs us from behind with the thought of annihilation, when beholding the white depths of the Milky Way, or is it that in an essence whiteness is not so much a color as the visible absence of color, and at the same time the concrete of all colors, Is it for these reasons that there is such dumb blankness, full of meaning in the wide landscapes of snow, a colorless all-color atheism from which we shrink? And when we consider that the other theory of the natural philosophers, that all other earthly hues, every state or lovely emblazoning, the sweet tinges of sunset skies and woods, yea, and the gilded velvets of butterflies and the butterfly cheeks of young girls, all these are but subtle deceits, not actually inherent in substance, but only laid on from without, so that all deified nature absolutely paints like the harlot, whose allurements covering nothing but the charnel house within. And when we proceed further, and consider that the mystical cosmetic which produces every one of her hues, the great principle of light forever remains white or colorless in itself, and if operating without medium upon matter, would touch all objects, even tulips and roses, with its own blank tinge, Pondering all this, the palsied universe lies before us a leper, and like willful travelers in Lapland who refuse to wear colored or coloring glasses upon their eyes, so the wretched infidel gazes himself blind at the monumental white shroud that wraps all the prospect around him. And of all those things the albino whale was the symbol. Wonder ye, then, at the fiery hunt."